Hello and welcome to All Things Women's Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I'm a, I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I'm a small business owner. I'm a Catholic. I'm a lot of things. But right now, on this show, I'm your host to talk about all things women's health and all ways from a Catholic perspective. Now, from childbirth to infertility or pregnancy loss to menopause, homeschooling to personal trainers, it doesn't matter. If it involves women and their health, it's on our agenda for all things women's health. Now, helping me out in this episode is my good friend and co-host and producer of another podcast that you may have heard, Dr. Doctor. Um, she's a patient of the Fertility Midwifery Care Center. She's one of the biggest cheerleaders for the Holy Family Birth Center that's ever existed. Uh, my co-host, Andrea Sereni. Andrea, thanks for joining me. It is an honor. I'm happy to be here. So I've done this work now for more than 25 years, and I can tell you that there is really no greater challenge uh, or stress to a married couple than an encounter and a struggle with infertility. Um, the nicest thing I can say about it is it's really ugly. Um, it strikes at the heart of what it means to be married or you know, what it means to be man and woman. It's just horrible. Um, and a mentor of mine used to say, if the devil just needs a crack to get into a relationship, well, infertility is a giant crevasse. Um, so those struggles are ugly. And to make matters even worse, my peers, my colleagues in medicine often say the absolute wrong things. And believe me, I hear these stories every day. Just wait, you're young, you'll be fine. Take birth control pills, it'll help. <laughs> you know. And of course, there's my all-time favorite, don't worry, you can have IVF or in vitro fertilization. Mm -hmm. So let's unwrap a little bit about what it means to struggle with infertility, when you should ask for help, and then when you do ask for help, what that approach ought to be, uh, and try to understand a lot more about that. So we'll be right back with all things women's health. We're back with all things women's health and today all things infertility. So what is infertility? When is it appropriate to begin asking questions about your fertility? And what should those questions be? And to whom should you ask those questions? Let's start off with you know some simple sort of principles. But even before I do that, you'll hear me say sometimes the Creighton model or the Creighton fertility model or even the strange word NAPRO technology. These are all approaches to managing uh, fertility. And it's part of a, a much larger body of remarkable science. You can learn a lot about it at Pope Paul 6 or VI, Roman numeral 6.com. Pope Paul the 6.com. Check their site out. You can look at all of their links and learn a lot more about this approach um, to women's health and more specifically to infertility. But let's start with a couple of philosophical points. You know, one of them is, Andrea, if a man and a woman are engaging in the natural marital embrace, they ought to be pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it seems very basic, but you know, it also goes down to, you were talking about the idea of marriage. Like you think of dreaming about your wedding day, but you also like dream about your family, what your kids will be like, what they'll enjoy, like all those kinds of things. And I know I've seen how painful it can be for those dreams to seem short circuited and have no <laughs> clue what to do next. So you can choose as a woman to be a professional soccer player, if you like, um, but you're designed to be pregnant. And mm -hmm. so if you are designed to be pregnant and you're not pregnant, that means there's something wrong. Um, that sounds you know pretty intuitive, but yet I'll find a lot of times talking to patients, that's pretty overwhelming just to hear that, even though yeah. maybe they thought that. Um, but to hear me say that can be painful, but you should be pregnant. You're designed to be pregnant. If you're not doing what you're designed to do, something is wrong. That's really a pretty natural law principle. Um, that's Although not it, that's not really the narrative that you hear like, in, <laughs> no. in like the secular world, right? Like no. pregnancy is like, should only ever be super planned and extremely intentional and all these things. It's never like, well, it's a, just a natural thing that's 
going to happen <laughs> if if yeah. you let it. Uh, so I can see why there would that would even increase the confusion then with people who have you know lived in this world. You know, I can say at least for myself, we live in this world where the narrative is pregnant when you want, not pregnant when you don't want. And yeah. that is normal. Yeah, but exactly. you're saying that's not the case. That's not. So you're designed to be pregnant. If you're not pregnant, there's something wrong. Another important principle, that something is usually not one thing. It's usually a constellation of things. Mm. Now, sometimes there's a so-called smoking gun, you might say, the problem with a couple that's not pregnant. But usually it's a constellation of things. And, and that reminds me... Uh, of what I just said, the couple that's not pregnant. I try to really emphasize that uh, no individual has a problem with fertility. A couple has a problem with infertility. You didn't say in your marital vows, you know, I do to the extent that you're able to become pregnant quickly, right? <laughs> you said, I do. Sickness and health, good times and bad. So a couple struggles with infertility, but it's usually not one problem. It's usually a constellation of problems. Another important point it's usually knowable. Now, that is really counter to the, the cultural narrative. It is usually knowable what's going on, what the problem or problems is or are. And more importantly, those problems are usually addressable. Hmm. That's a lot of stuff wrapped into one sort of paragraph. So you're designed to be pregnant. If you're not pregnant, it means something is wrong. That something is usually knowable. And it's usually something that we can do something about. That's a lot more hopeful narrative than than I'm sort of used to hearing about infertility. I'm used to hearing, um, well, sometimes you just can't and it's a mystery and we can never solve problems with women's health. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite you know, one of my favorite phrases is unexplained infertility. And mm. quite frankly, unexplained infertility is most commonly uninvestigated infertility. Mm. I don't know why you're not pregnant because I haven't looked. Um, yeah. So that, that's a problem. But, you know, you remind me another, probably the most important principle. Uh, and that is um, every man and woman are not called to biologic parenthood. Mm -hmm. uh, now that is something no woman and her husband want to hear from me. And it's something that no right-minded physician wants to ever say. Mm -hmm. But I'm morally obligated to point that out to a couple that I'm talking to because it is the objective truth. Not every man and woman at every point in time in their life are called to be biological parents. But my job as a fertility expert is to help you figure that out, to figure out mm -hmm. if you're called. If there's the disease process in the way, you don't know if you're called to parenthood or not. Um, we've got to find the disease, treat that disease, then you get your answer. Mm. Um, but I try to always remind couples at the beginning of this journey and discussion, you may not be called to biologic parenthood, but we're going to find out. Um, if you're not, you'll understand it before this is all over. Yeah. At the very least, your body, ideally with investigation and treatment, is not going to be the thing standing in the way anymore, even if... if when all is said and done, right? Children are not just an object you can pick up from the store, right? It's all part of a much bigger yeah. plan. So given given these philosophical knowns, I would say, uh, how then do we even begin an approach to a couple sitting in front of me that is not becoming pregnant? First of all, a little myth busting. One of the things that my peers often say that really make me more than a little crazy is, you know, just keep trying. If it hasn't been at least a year, um, there's nothing to do. That advice usually leads to the waste of about a year and a half. You know, so yeah. And you know what? I, that makes me think of how, like, for a, a whole host of reasons, which is a whole nother show. People are getting married later and later. And mm -hmm. I can remember, I was not even that old really when I got married, but I was. I had just turned twenty six, and I remember like feeling like the clock was ticking already, right? Because women know that you're not fertile forever. So I'm just trying to imagine how frustrating it would feel to have a doctor say to me, you know, if I'm 26, 27, even married, maybe even later, oh, just give it a year. I'm like, I don't have a year <laughs> to just wait. Well, I mean, just think about the simple math. You're going to try for a while, a few months, maybe four mm -hmm. months, 
maybe six months. Then you're going to decide, I'm going to go see someone. You're going to wait a couple of months to get in to see a physician. Then, you know, then they're going to tell you, well, wait a year. Mm. Um, you know, now you've spent a year and a half. Now you're going to decide, I didn't get pregnant. I'm going to go see somebody. It's going to be another few months before you get in. But, you know, in, in, in many cases, it's almost two years now have been spent where nothing has been done other than, you know, time has ticked. So that, yeah. that little voice inside you that says at 26, my clock is ticking. It's right. It is ticking. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. I like to point out we're at our most fertile and our dumbest in adolescence, right? <laughs> and then uh, every year of a woman's life, sorry, man, doesn't seem to matter, but every year <laughs> of a woman's life, your fertility naturally declines all the way to menopause. There's mm -hmm. no magic year, but a 28-year-old is less fertile than an 18-year-old and mm -hmm. a 38-year-old is less fertile than a 28-year-old. Um, that's just a biological reality. So listen to that voice that says, my clock is ticking because guess what? You know, it really is. Yeah. And so not in a panicky way, but in a way that says, I, I have a right to go ask my doctor to help me with this problem. Yeah. Time is not our friend, right? Maybe it's yeah. the friend of wisdom, but other than <laughs> that, time is, time is sort of the enemy of we humans. Yeah. Just look in the mirror and it's, <laughs> so don't wait. You know, if, if a man and woman are just, uh, being intimate on a natural schedule, not really even being intentional about it, three to six menstrual cycles, they should be pregnant. Mm. If they're not, start asking questions. And that's probably a good segue. What do we mean? How do we begin asking questions? So I like to say there's three categories of questions that, you know, that we want to ask. But before I even get to those, just this idea that it's knowable and it, it should be knowable why a couple is not getting pregnant. So where I think we get it wrong in contemporary women's health is we confuse the symptom for the disease. Mm. I like to use the cardiology example. Imagine if you go to a cardiologist and you say, gee, every time I get on the treadmill, uh, my heart, my chest starts hurting. You know, <laughs> and the, if the cardiologist were to say, no worries, take two Vicodin before you get on the treadmill, <laughs> And your chest isn't going to hurt anymore. I think most right-thinking people would think there's something just wrong with that. Yeah, you know, you'd want to say, "Wait, that what? Aren't you worried about why my chest hurts?" And mm -hmm. in this fun analogy, the cardiologist would say, "You asked me to fix your pain. I fixed it. Pay the door." Mm. That's what happens in contemporary women's health. We confuse the absence of pregnancy as the disease. That's the symptom. Hmm. And everywhere throughout contemporary medicine, we look at symptoms to point us to disease processes. We treat those disease processes, and then we look at the, the resolution of symptoms as evidence that we've, we've done the right thing. Um, you know, your knee hurts. I find torn cartilage. I fix the torn cartilage. Then I ask you if your knee hurts, and you say, gee, it, it's fine now. I know I've done the right thing. That's medicine. Uh, it's not women's health, unfortunately. Um, too many young women will first get, you know, sort of spend some time with their, their OBGYN. Then they get referred to a reproductive endocrinologist who says, you're not pregnant. No worries. I'll make you pregnant. We'll do IVF. Mm. Mm -hmm. And a lot of couples will say, gosh, there, something's wrong with that. Um, aren't you worried why I'm not pregnant? Well, there's the phrase. It's unexplained infertility. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, maybe we'll get to this eventually in this episode or another episode, but I'm thinking about, you know, with this heart example, not treating the cause of the pain could lead to them like dying, right? Yes. And I know this for a fact from, luckily, not my own experience, but from so many women that I know who do end up getting their infertility causes treated, that not treating it causes even more damage to their bodies that just is ignored if nobody bothers to find out what's happening. Well, and it's so contrary to sort of that natural law principle. If, if what you're designed to do is not happening, something's wrong. You know, there's mm -hmm. something causing dis-ease or disease. And if we find that out and fix it, you're, now you're, you're restored. And you're yeah, reborn. and not just now you can get pregnant, but also now your body is healed <laughs> of something that was wrong. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah you're, you've got it exactly right. So, so given that, how do we begin to ask questions? Well, we're always asking, as I referenced, three categories of questions. So, you know, listeners, try to put yourself back into high school biology class, um, where if like me, you probably weren't paying attention. But, <laughs> but those three categories are pretty simple. Category one, think all things male. Is there a sperm? There doesn't have to be 500 million, but there's got to be one. So is there a sperm? Category one. That's an easy one. Category two, the female equivalent. Is there an egg? Is the woman ovulating? Now, this category is probably the hardest one to figure out, um, mm. but critical. And then category three, can those two parties get together? Uh, remember those great videos that you saw where the sperm enters the egg and then the egg begins to divide? That's called fertilization. That's category three. Can that happen? In category three, there are these you know, structural, mechanical, physical problems that are preventing sperm and egg from uniting. So given those three categories, is there a sperm? Is there an egg? Can they get together? Let's kind of start marching through, um, you know, those categories. But as you hear me say that, are there things that come to mind or things that you've heard, you know, about those categories? Yeah, I it, it makes me start to think of like, it, it seems like a big puzzle. Mm. That has simple pieces, but a lot of pieces, maybe. <laughs> like it, it makes me think like, oh, this seems so easy, but it seems like there could be so many things that could go wrong yeah. with those things that it would be it could be really hard to figure out. Like <laughs> that's the, true. Yeah. I like to say it's just that simple and just that complicated at the same yeah, time. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So where do you begin then? Yeah, so category one, semen analysis. Now, uh, when I mention semen analysis, a bunch of things come to mind to the men that are sitting across the table. You know, the first one is, well, there's nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's that's the, uh, whether they admit it or not, that's usually the most common response. And then to a lot of my patients uh, who think about life like you and I do, uh, they think, I know what he's going to say next, and that's immoral. Uh, mm. I'm not, I'm not going to participate in what it takes to obtain a semen analysis. Um, so there's good news there. First of all, you know, let me just encourage men that might be listening about 20% of the time, you know, about one in five cases, it is a male only issue causing infertility. Hmm. That number is higher than I think most men realize. Yeah. 20% uh, 20, 20 of the time it's a male only issue. Um, mm. but almost 40% of the time as high as 50%, there is a male component. So wow. no matter what, if I just play the numbers, it makes sense to get a semen analysis early on with a couple, you know, maybe the exception would be two years ago, um, the husband was married to a different woman and they had a child and they're divorced or something. And now he's remarried. Okay. Maybe we could assume that category one is okay. Even that's a bit of a stretch. Um, but regardless really of the history and the man's health status, if I play the numbers, I'm going to find something that I can work on almost half the time in category one. Yeah. I, I don't think I would have guessed that. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a woman and so I'm always thinking from that perspective, but I definitely don't think I would have thought that up to half the time there is, you know, work to be done for the sake of the man and in addition to the woman. And that work, as you say, might be something simple as taking some supplements from the vitamin store. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be taking a medication. It might be taking an antibiotic. It might be drinking a little less caffeine and a little more water. You know, mm. um, it might be something really simple, but it's something we can do something about. Wow. So uh, how do we how do we do a semen analysis in a in a dignified, ethical way? that's consistent with Catholic Church teaching? And that, that's an important question. Even for my non-Catholic patients, if men are honest about it, they will say, in many cases, I'm not doing that. I know mm. what it means to do a semen analysis, and I'm just not going to a lab in a closet, and I'm not doing that. Yeah. Um, and, and women often know that their husband is going to say that, and they're afraid to even ask. Mm. Um, so there is a much more dignified and actually much better way to obtain the study. And that involves a special condom. And so the man and woman engage in the natural marital embrace outside of their fertile window. 
uh, using a special condom. What's special about it? Well, a couple of things. It's talc-free and latex-free and lubricant-free, um, and uh, they're impossible to find. So <laughs> in our office, we buy them by the crate. Um, mm-hmm. so if, if anybody ever hacks my Amazon account and finds out that I buy condoms by the crate, um, <laughs> No, there's going to be controversy among the Catholic physicians that you know, <laughs> that Stroud buys condoms like this. But no, uh, they're impossible to find. Uh, and then the other thing that we do um, is we suggest that the couple take a, a little needle and punch three little holes in the end of the condom. One for the father, one for the son, and one for the Holy <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that is actually a, a USCCB approved method of obtaining a semen analysis. So my Catholic patients, when I say that, they do what you just did. They just laugh. Um, <laughs> my Protestant patients look at me and they just shake their head and say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but regardless, uh, it, it's, a, it's a dignified uh, way to obtain the semen analysis. So then the, the contents of the condom are then emptied into a cup and then that cup is taken to the lab. Um, it's critical. Now you, you've got to talk to your provider a lot about the details of this test because, um, time is of the essence. You've only got about 30 minutes from the time the sperm leave the man's body until they start dying. So mm. you, you can't drive an hour to the lab or the test is going to be invalid. Um, mm. so we have to work out some details sometimes to get that, uh, get that done. But that's maybe not super it. romantic, but definitely more dignified. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, precisely. It's all for the greater good. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so we get the semen analysis done. Now, what are we looking for on that? There's really four things that we're looking for. Count. Everybody thinks about count. Everybody knows that they count the number of sperm. Uh, that's important. But there's a lot more. We also want to know what's called the motility. How many of those sperm are swimming? Mm. Then we want to know a strange word called morphology. How many of them look normal? If a rose looks like a rose, you say that's a rose. But if a rose looked pretty funny, you could tell it's a rose, but you know it's not a normal rose. So we want to know how many of them appear to be normal. And then the last thing we're looking for is signs of inflammation. Does the man have maybe some degree of underlying what's called prostatitis or inflammation in the prostate gland? That's something we can often fix with better hydration and sometimes an extended course of an antibiotic. Hmm. So those are the four critical things that we want to know. Um, and there's common interventions we can do to address all of those things. So don't, I think a lot of men are afraid I'm going to find something, uh, <laughs> but it's okay. If I find something, I can usually do something about that. Yeah. Now, just rewind like three minutes or whatever and hear about <laughs> the lots of times you just have to drink water and less coffee. <laughs> exactly. yeah. uh, another common uh, problem is men who take testosterone boosting supplements. Mm. Uh, it's very common. They think, gee, my wife's not getting pregnant. I'll go down to health kick and I'll get something that raises my testosterone. And that can often have a negative impact on the sperm count. So that's one of the things we always Ooh. caution against. Yeah. Uh, but there's other simple interventions as well. So don't be afraid of that. Um, and then sometimes that'll lead to a blood draw to check men's hormone levels and things like that. But the easy first step is let's get a semen analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's category one, wrapped up, not that difficult. You know, yeah. let's face it, you know, women listening, we men, our reproductive physiology is just not that interesting. <laughs> uh, no offense to my urology colleagues, but it's just not that interesting. Oh. I might be a little biased, but it's just not that interesting. <laughs> so then we move on to topics much more interesting. You and, and your counterparts, the women, is there an egg? So we figured out if there's a sperm. Now there's got, we've got to figure out um, if there's an egg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the founder of the Creighton Method, Dr. Tom Hilders, loves to say, the only proof of ovulation is pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're sitting in front of me and you're pregnant, I can say, hands down, you ovulated. There's no debate. There, there definitely was an egg involved in this process. <laughs> um, but shy of that, uh, that's a pretty gross assessment. Shy of that, I've got to build sort of a case for ovulation. Mm. Um, so I need to do the best I can in putting evidence together, much like an attorney would in a case, to say, I think this woman is ovulatory. 
And we do that with a, a combination of things. We, we check progesterone on certain days. Sometimes we watch the follicle develop in the ovary on the ultrasound. Um, mm. Often we use a natural family planning chart called, the, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the Creighton model or some of the other NFP models to try to get an idea if there's ovulation. We might use basal body temperature. We've got a lot of tools to get at that. Um, but it's a difficult method to figure out or difficult task to figure out if a woman is ovulating. Yeah. Anybody who has done any kind of marriage prep, natural family planning training will be familiar with the theory of (laughs) figuring out when have I ovulated and when have I not. But I can say I have been so lucky that it's always been very obvious for me, but that is just not the case for so many people. It's not you're, always easy to see. You're exactly right. And you re- you remind me, so I'll put you on the spot. So true or false, if you're having n- regular menstrual cycles, it proves you're ovulating. False. Good. Excellent. Everybody gets that wrong. <laughs> Good for you. And then the corollary question, if you're having irregular menstrual cycles, that proves you're not ovulating. False again. False again. You're exactly right. So, you know, often I'll say to women, we need to figure out if you're ovulating. And she'll say, well, my app says I am. I have 28 Mm. cycles. Congratulations. That's nice that they're regular, (laughs) uh, but it does not prove ovulation. Mm -hmm. And further, it doesn't prove if it's a good ovulation. Uh, I like to say that all ovulations are not created equally. So one of the ways we figure out if it's a good ovulation which is sort of another way to say, is it a good egg, uh, is by checking the progesterone after ovulation. So Mm. just because you have a regular cycle doesn't mean you're ovulating. Another common thing that I see a lot is um, the woman will say to me, well, what do I do if I'm not ovulating? And I say, well, we might use a medication like Clomid or like Femera or Letrozole. And she'll say, oh, I did that with my last doctor. It didn't work. Hmm. And I'll say, well, did they prove that you had an ovulation problem or was it more of a, you know, let's just give you this medicine and see if you get pregnant. Uh, mm-hmm. 99% of the time it's the latter and not the former. You know, hmm. that makes me think of somebody going to our good friend, Dr. Malali and saying, gosh, Dr. Malali, I just, I don't feel good. And, <laughs> and Malali says, oh, wow, let's give you a little blood pressure medicine and see how you do. <laughs> Yeah, right. He would never do that. He would try to figure out why you feel bad. So don't take ovulation medicines unless there's a logical reason to take it. And the only logical reason would be you have a problem with ovulation. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are ways, you're saying there are ways to, to gather evidence, maybe not prove in like an absolute certainty kind of way, but there are ways to say, I have enough evidence to suggest this as opposed to, well, it's kind of, it's one reason that people don't get pregnant. So let's just try. Right. Exactly. No other area of medicine. Does anybody do that? I have this growth on my arm. I'm going to give you a little chemotherapy. No, that's not. I'm sensing a little bit of a trend here with the way that (laughs) contemporary medicine treats uh, women's health. Luckily, not my doctor. (laughs) But it's it's not flattering, but unfortunately, it's true. Yeah. I mean, and and, and as we continue sort of with that that theme, there is absolutely no role for birth control pills in treating ovulation. At least three times a week, I see a woman who's frustrated. Time is ticking, as you pointed out early on. And she said, my last physician said, I should take birth control pills. Maybe it will help me get pregnant. There's just not a universe in which that makes sense. Um, and yet it's, it's done all of the time. You know, taking I'm not birth even control sure what pills, to say about that. <laughs> well, you have to think on it a minute. But, but <laughs> taking birth control pills will give you a timeable, predictable menstrual bleed. Mm-hmm. That's not ovulation. Um, right. And it's not going to help with ovulation. So don't do it. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> and then maybe for listeners, you know, a, a, maybe a couple of things that are common causes of ovulation problems. Um, I think one of the most common one is thyroid disease. Mm. Uh, easy to check, easy to treat. Pituitary disease, if the prolactin level is elevated, that can really cause a problem with ovulation. We can fix that easily. Um, adrenal gland dysfunction 
um, or hypothalamic function in the brain. Uh, one of the big ones, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Everybody's heard of PCOS. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's true if you've heard dramatic stressors can really affect ovulation. Um, because it's our ask- hormones that are are making the egg release. So all of these things, the pituitary gland, the thyroid, PCOS, all of these things are messing with the hormones and making it so that that's not happening normally. Exactly. And giant stressors mess with the hormones, mm-hmm. um, especially cortisol. You know, so whether it's a new job that you love or a new job that you hate or a, a new dramatic exercise program, you know, your mother-in-law moves in, you know, the, <laughs> any, anything that's a big stressor like that um, has the ability to affect ovulation. So that's something mm-hmm. we, we never want to overlook. Um, but that's ovulation. So we figure out, is there an egg? We figured out if there's a sperm. Now we figure out, is there an egg? If there's not an egg or there's a problem with the production of the egg, we fix that. Mm-hmm. Now we've, we've addressed two thirds of the possible problems. And by the way, that probably takes about two months to get done. Um, not a year, um, mm-hmm. not a day, um, but about about two months to get that two yeah, cycles. I I would say that timetable s- seems shorter than I think I would have maybe guessed. Like that that's good news. It's good news that that doesn't take too well, long. To, to, I think it's important to point that out because you know yeah. part of the problem is because of the things that we mentioned at the beginning. By the time I'm talking to the couple, one or both of them is already frustrated, and mm-hmm. I say you know, we're going to spend the next couple of months getting some answers. And they're thinking, I've already spent eight, you know, mm-hmm. and you're going to waste two more. I want to be pregnant this afternoon. Um, <laughs> yeah. And unfortunately, it's not going to work that way. We've got to do some evaluation uh, before we start jumping in with treatments. Mm. But that's category two. So now what about category three? Can sperm and egg get together? This is a big one. Um, you know, and on this, in this category, there's a lot of things. Could you be born without fallopian tubes? You know, could you uh, have damaged tubes from an infection that maybe you never knew you had? Um, are your fallopian tubes just congenitally stuck to the side of your pelvis and can't reach your ovaries just the way that you were made? Um, hmm. Some would call that a birth defect, you might say. Um, those are all certainly possibilities, yes. But the most common problem in Category 3 is, guess what? endometriosis. You know, my wife often accuses me of having an unhealthy relationship with endometriosis. Um, (laughs) And and that's probably true. I do. (laughs) Um, Just because it's public enemy number one of all things fertility. Mm. uh, It is evil, at least in my mind, when it comes to women's health. So maybe a couple of words about what is endometriosis, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, the lining to the uterus is called the endometrium. That's the part that sheds with a menstrual period. You would be shocked if you know you you got a sample of menstrual blood, looked at it under a microscope. You'd you'd probably be shocked to see it's a lot of dead tissue, hmm. uh, and that dead tissue was the lining of the uterus that has now died and sloughed off because pregnancy didn't occur that cycle. You know every menstrual period occurs because pregnancy didn't occur, that cycle. Mm-hmm. So that lining sloughs off. Well, endometriosis is when that lining is found outside of the uterus, most commonly mm-hmm. in the pelvis. And so it invades the tissues of the pelvis. It sets up shop and it acts like it's still inside the uterus. And if you kind of think about it in a weird way, that's how we would describe a cancer. You know, yeah. It, it, it leaves the normal place, goes to another place, but it still looks like it's in the normal place. It's in a place it doesn't belong and has no function or purpose other than exactly. invasive. Precisely. So then in the first half of the menstrual cycle, when the lining of the uterus is growing, that endometriosis is growing. In the last half of the cycle, when the dead tissue is sloughing off, that misplaced endometrium is sloughing off dead tissue. So that would mean with a menstrual period, you've got dead, necrotic, bloody tissue in your pelvis. That doesn't belong there. (laughs) You know, that that doesn't even sound good, does it? (laughs) Yeah. And just like, just, I just think we should like pause for a second and let it sink in that 
how serious it is then when doctors are like, we don't need to figure out what this actual problem is that's causing this infertility or this pain or whatever. We can just treat like you were cycling all the way back to the beginning. We can just treat this symptom and not have to worry about the disease, like giving Vicodin to someone who's having chest pain. Think about how much damage is being caused by this in literally invasive <laughs> tissue exactly. in the wrong place in your body. Yeah. yeah. You said that, you said that well, it's a bizarre disease and it doesn't get the, um, you know, it doesn't get the press coverage it deserves for the havoc that it causes in men and women's lives. And we could do another episode on it, but it really dates back to the late seventies um, when in vitro fertilization sort of came on to the scene. You know, mm. uh, you know, I went to medical school about 150 years ago, but <laughs> I, I remember being told very clearly endometriosis is kind of interesting, but don't pay a lot of attention to it because all those women are going to get IVF. Um, and the trouble with that is all the research dollars, all the energy, all the interest shifted from endometriosis to IVF. Um, and so, it, it, you know, there's, Two medications, two, a total of two medications that are FDA approved for endometriosis. One of them is only two years old. The other one's about 40 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about that, there's a new blood pressure medicine that comes on the market about every other day. Mm -hmm. uh, but just no work, no research in endometriosis. But mm -hmm. I digress. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do another show on that sometime. Yes, yes, definitely. So endometriosis, you might say, how does it cause infertility? Well, one of the places it can go is the tubes. If it does that, it blocks the tubes. That's like a woman having her tubes tied. That makes sense. The other way is a little debatable. And so even if it spares the tubes, um, just by being in the pelvis, it causes infertility. And academics argue over how that works. But it mm. probably has something to do with the inflammatory pathways or the interleukin systems or something that's called macrophage activation factor. Um, but it, it charges up the peritoneal fluid and turns it into a toxic soup is a nice mm. way to think. So every day I'll operate on a woman whose tubes are spared. They're fine, but she's got a focus of endometriosis. I take that out. She gets pregnant three cycles later. Mm. So anecdotally, we know it works even if we're not exactly certain uh, of the mechanism. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe some of the research dollars can be, can be shifted back. <laughs> so how do we figure out if you have endometriosis? This is one of the more frustrating things. I have to look inside your pelvis. Mm. Um, can't do an MRI. I can't do a CAT scan. The only way to know, I can suspect it, but the only way to know is to put a little camera inside the pelvis that's called laparoscopy and look around and see if you have it. Then if I have it, it has to be cut out. It's got to be excised, that's called, by a surgeon who's trained in what's called excisional endometriosis surgery. Um, that's how we treat endometriosis. So you said you can suspect it. What are some of the things that would make you suspect it? Oh, that's, that's a really good point. And it's deceiving. So a lot of women will say, oh, I don't have endometriosis. My periods aren't painful. Hmm. About 50% of women who have endometriosis have the kind of um, Google symptom of endometriosis. You know, they have intractable pain. Um, you know, high school young women are missing soccer practice. They're coming home from school early in eighth grade. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not doing well once a month. But that's only about half of the women who have endometriosis. The other half, their symptom is they don't get pregnant when they should. Hmm. Uh, so the absence of pain is not proof that you don't have endometriosis. Wow. So if you tell me I've got intractable pain with my periods, I'm suspecting endometriosis. But just because you don't have that pain, if that's all that's left, I'm going to, I'm mm -hmm. going to look at endometriosis. So you, yeah. So once you've ruled out, okay, we know that ovulation is happening uh, yeah. and we know that, that we've done the test for sperm and egg and it still isn't working. So there must be something that's preventing them to getting together, right? We're following this three-step plan. Yep. And you're then then you would say, okay, well, I have to, I need to at least look, or I should at least look for right. endometriosis, because it's the only thing left. I'm going to find something. If I look, I'll find something. Um, and that's where the breakdown often happens with so-called unexplained infertility. Mm 
mm. uh, is uninvestigated infertility. So it's been taken down now, but years ago on the American Association of Reproductive Endocrinologists, that's the doctors that do in vitro fertilization. Uh, there was a statement that said five things you and your doctor should know. The first thing on the list was don't do laparoscopy for unexplained infertility. And then in small print beneath it, it said, hasn't been shown to improve IVF rates. <laughs> so, you know, in a, in a weird sense, they're right. If you're going to have in vitro fertilization from a pregnancy standpoint, probably doesn't matter if you have endometriosis. So they're not, they're not illogical. They're saying it doesn't matter. We're going to do IVF. Physicians like me are saying it absolutely matters. We're not going to do IVF. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's where the breakdown occurs. You're not pregnant. We've tried all these things. Let's go to IVF. I'm going to say, you're not pregnant. We've ruled out all these things. You've got a category three issue. Let's look inside and find it and then fix and, it. And not just because of the moral objections to IVF, not just because IVF is enormously expensive, but because <laughs> your body is not functioning properly. It's damaging the inside of your pelvis and yeah. you deserve to be healed of it. <laughs> oh. you know, and two of the other big symptoms with endometriosis are severe pain with intimacy um, mm. and pain with bowel movements, especially around the menstrual period. So, mm. I mean, these are significant lifestyle issues, even if pregnancy wasn't, wasn't desired to your point. Uh, but you're right. It's a disease process that, that deserves to be diagnosed uh, and mm -hmm. treated. So, you know, th that's the first thing I see someone, they say, well, we failed IVF. We failed IUIs or intrauterine insemination. I say, well, did they talk about looking in your pelvis? No, not at all. Mm. They called it unexplained infertility. I call it uninvestigated infertility. Mm -hmm. Now, not everyone needs laparoscopy. Don't get me wrong. Um, sometimes we find an ovulation problem. We repair that and boom, they're pregnant in three to six good cycles, mm -hmm. uh, which is great. We celebrate that. But as you pointed out, we march that list. Um, sometimes we'll go out of order. You know, mm. so um, it not uncommonly I'll meet a young woman who, um, as we're working through the initial evaluation, she's got pain with intimacy to the point that she and her husband maybe can barely even be intimate. I'm thinking endometriosis. Let's right bypass away. everything else and go right to laparoscopy. Mm -hmm. But more times than not, we march through that list uh, in a really stepwise, logical way. Yeah. And we ended with this kind of scary, like, wow, what do you mean that there's lining throughout my pelvis kind of possibility? But like you mentioned, as we went through this checklist, just as a reminder, there were a lot of other reasons that it could be that with much simpler solutions um, that that can be done more quickly and more easily and um, yeah. And more ethically. And, and this is not rocket science. If it, if it, if it were, I wouldn't be doing it. it it's, it's very <laughs> logical. You know, um, engineers love this approach to fertility because it's very logical. It makes <laughs> sense. You know, yeah. we're going to march our way through, we're going to find things, we're going to address those things. And then God willing, which is not just a passing phrase, um, mm -hmm. couples should become pregnant if that's what they're called to do. Um, so, you know, as you hear that, I know there, I know you talk to women a lot. Um, what do you think is most surprising about sort of that body or that approach to fertility? Yeah, I think the most surprising thing is that some of the solutions are so easy, uh, like, mm. like circling back to, um, things like, you know, sometimes all you need to do is recommend that a man hydrate better to get down inflammation or have less caffeine or stop taking testosterone supplements or whatever. And even for women, I, I know I, I have never suffered any long-term infertility, but I did have like a brief experience of secondary infertility. Mm. And, um, you know, we had been pretty actively trying for a few months, so like five or six months. So long enough that uh, Marianne, your wife, was like, when are you going to ask for help with this problem? <laughs> <laughs> but I decided to try one more thing because I had suspected for a long time that um, eating dairy was uh -huh. affecting my thyroid. And so I stopped eating dairy. And right away, that very next cycle, we were pregnant. Um, wow. So there are, so I, I think that's like such hopeful news is that for people who are experiencing the beginning, the mystery phase of the infertility, 
not to be afraid of the testing because it's possible that the solution will be, if not easy, easier than the frustration of infertility, right? Yeah. It's, it's easier than the pain of that, at least. Um, and then on the other end of that spectrum is even if it is hard, there's, there's healing, right? There's, there's health at the end of this road. There's being more healthy and more whole. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are, I think that's a great way to say it. I mean, do you remember that feeling when you weren't getting pregnant? Um, Yeah. Do you remember what that was like? Yeah. I, especially, you you know, it, it's that, it's that, uh, what's wrong? How can there be something wrong with me? Right. And I can't imagine, you know, I can, I can only try to imagine what that would be like for people who have primary infertility. Mm, I, I was like, what's wrong with me now? This was working fine before what's wrong with me now. Um, so yeah, it's that what's wrong with me. Why is my body not working? Am I doing something wrong? How, how, why shouldn't I be, shouldn't I be able to fix this? Um, which are all sort of irrational, <laughs> but you still think them, you still feel that way. And then you feel that sort of longing, even on top of that, the, oh, I want, I really want to, you know, have the love that I have in my family expanded and it's not happening. And I don't, I don't know why. Um, no. Yeah. So how common is infertility? I, I have to say anecdotally, it seems common. It seems like it happens to a lot of people that I know. Yeah, it's extremely common. And I can say that just based on how many people I see struggling with it. And that's a fraction of the people that want to be seen and, and need to be seen. It's very, very common. And people often ask, well, is it is it becoming more common? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a great question. And I'm not even... I'm not even sure there's a trustworthy answer because it's hard to know. But because any of the things that you read are clouded by sort of the societal endorsement of artificial contraception. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's really hard to get what the natural fertility is supposed to be in 25 to 35-year-old women because mm-hmm. it is associated with the majority of them um, you know, using artificial contraception and then stopping uh, at some point. But yeah, it's very hard to know. It's extremely common. Um, I love seeing young women who are concerned about their fertility, even women before they get married who just think, I don't know, my aunt had trouble. I mm. want to find out today if there's something so I can start working on it, even though I may not need my fertility, so to speak, for several years. Um, time is the enemy, mm-hmm. especially if something like endometriosis is at play. And so the sooner we can start asking those questions, the sooner we can intervene and make a difference and maybe preserve or restore fertility completely. Yeah. So would you, so I'm thinking back then you saying that made me think of like, you mentioned like the soccer player in high school who is sitting out of games or who the girl who can't participate in gym class or is going home early from school or whatever. Would you encourage then like maybe those girls are listening or their parents to Act to pursue some kind of answers about that, like that's not oh, normal. That's not <laughs> right. Normal. Yeah, you know there is there is some degree of discomfort with normal menses. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that has to do with the prostaglandins and things like that and uterine contractions. Um, but to to have menses accompanied by nausea and vomiting um, and and the inability to function, you know, spending two to four days a month in the fetal position in your bed, that's not normal. And yet mm-hmm. I hear those stories every day. Um, and then the, the corollary to that is moms that are listening. You take your 12 or 14 or 15-year-old to your gynecologist with this problem. And if they say, gosh, I don't know, let's just put you on the pill. You should run, not walk to the nearest exit. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the absolute worst thing you could do for that young woman. Um, because this is not my wacky Catholic guy opinion. This is borne out in the research that Birth control pills do absolutely nothing for endometriosis other than making the pain better, mm-hmm. but they do nothing for the disease. So sadly, the classic example that I see more often than I care to, to realize is that the young woman like you're talking about, her mother's worried about her. She takes her to her gynecologist who puts her on birth control pills. The daughter is thrilled. She's as happy as she can be. So the mom is thrilled. Life is good. She stays on the pill through high school. She probably stays on it in college. 
college is coming to an end. Maybe now she's thinking about getting married. So she stops the pill. A few months after stopping it, her pain starts coming back. She starts thinking, this reminds me of eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And then she realizes after a few months, and I'm not getting pregnant. What's going on? And that's usually when I meet her, when she's 28 or 29. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would have much rather met her at 16 or 15 or 11, because maybe then I could have done something. Because if her tubes are destroyed and her late 20s because of endometriosis, it's game over. Um, but yes, to, to your question, the sooner you ask those questions, the better. And then don't take them to somebody that's going to put them on the pill. Um, find, um, find a physician that doesn't do that. And if it even means travel or telemedicine or whatever it takes to get that done, don't put young women on the pill for painful periods. Yeah, because circling back to the beginning again, even though this is not the approach that most or many contemporary women's health providers take, these issues oft, most often have solutions, right? That's what you said at the beginning, is that exactly. it's not it's not just that they can treat the symptoms, but they can figure out the problem and work to solve the problem. Precisely. And then that allows the couple to figure out, now we're whole, are we called to biologic parenthood, recognizing that we're not in charge? And the answer to that question could be no. Mm-hmm. Um but, or not now. Uh, mm-hmm. That's also the possibility. But you don't know until you figure out if there's a, a disease process at hand. Yeah. Well, well that, I, that's, a, that's a more hopeful uh, picture <laughs> of infertility than maybe I was expecting coming in. So, um, good. so that, that's good. That's good. Excellent. Well, I mean, if there's a couple of you know, takeaway points, I think it would be, remember you're designed to be pregnant. And if you're not, there's something wrong. You know, don't don't sweep that under the proverbial rug. Um, and and second, the approach to fertility should be straightforward, logical, and understandable. And if it isn't, you need a new approach. Um, and then, as I've said too many times, not all couples are called to biologic parenthood. You don't like hearing me say that. It probably makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. But it is the objective truth. So, you know, I guess we should probably bring this episode to a close of all things women's health. Uh, Andrea, it's been great talking with you about such a fun topic. I look forward to talking to you about more fun topics. Um, listeners, thanks for listening. I appreciate you spending a little bit of time uh, with me and with Andrea on this. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of some fascinating topic related to all things women's health. And we'll always do it from a Catholic perspective. So may God bless you and Mary keep you. We'll see you next time.